to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 will be in the first 23 verses here as we look at Jesus' kingdom parables. As we look at this first section, it's a well-known parable. The parable, sometimes it's called the parable of the sower, sometimes the parable of the soils because of what's going on here. But we're going to look at this idea this morning as we plant the gospel, that constantly planting gospel seeds leads to lasting gospel fruit. Constantly planting gospel seeds leads to lasting gospel fruit. I'll begin reading in Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear." We've seen Jesus teach quite a bit in the book of Matthew. There are five kind of main sections of, that are extended sections of his teaching, and this is one of those five sections. And in this section, uh, the ministry of Jesus, actually, we see a little bit of a shift. So up to this point, his audience has largely been his disciples. So for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, we see there that he teaches his disciples. Well, here is the first time we see him addressing the crowds at large. It's not that the crowds aren't there, but mainly they're listening in on conversations between Jesus and his disciples. And this time, he particularly and intentionally teaches his disciples. Another thing that shifts a little bit is where Jesus is teaching. So up to this point, the teaching ministry of Christ has largely been in synagogues. It's not that it didn't happen as he traveled, but kind of when he went into places, he'd go into the synagogue and he'd teach there. But here we see him uh, teaching outside. And so he's preaching more to the crowds, and, and we find Jesus today on a beach. And another thing that shifts is he's not teaching just in kind of straightforward teaching. He's using what he calls and what we call parables. Parables are a kind of allegory. In other words, there's something, Jesus takes something that everyone understands uh, in an agricultural society, uh, people understand kind of planting and things growing, and he takes that and then he puts alongside it something they don't understand. In this case, it's, it's the news of the kingdom of God. So he takes something they know and then something they don't understand, and he places them alongside each other, and so he takes this kind of uh, common everyday life and he uses it to picture something that it's harder to understand. And so we've got Jesus here in Matthew 13. He's going to give us the first of a series of seven parables teaching us about the kingdom of God. So here Jesus is. He's outside. And as he's outside, he's down by the beach. And as he's there, because he's, by this point, such a celebrity, the crowds come. And the crowds press, 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 press to the point where he moves, removes himself into a boat. He's standing in a boat. All the crowd is kind of gathered there on the beach listening to him. Maybe the water adds, acts as kind of a, an amplification for his voice. And he's, he's teaching the crowds. As we find the crowds there, we see that Jesus does kind of what he does a lot. And he tells a parable in these nine verses. It's a rather curious story. It's memorable, one that Many people know well, at least if they have been around the church, around the gospel at all. But it's a pretty mundane story. A farmer is out planting some seed. 
uh, something that these people would encounter quite a bit. Now, I've never been a farmer. I'm the son and a grandson of a farmer, but I've never really been a farmer myself. But I did spend 50, 15 years of my life uh, landscaping. And part of landscaping is that you have kind of different patterns for different types of work. So you'd have things where you'd have a blueprint. And what does a blueprint tell you to do? It tells you exactly where to put everything. And so you'd plant things carefully in a design. But other times we'd use what you might call a broadcast spreader. That's something that can go on the back of a tractor, or probably uh, many of you have something like this that you walk behind in your yard, and it's got something that brrr, spins around and it sprays a seed out everywhere. Sometimes they even have them where you can hold them in your hand and you spin them like that. Well, that's a broadcast spreader. And that's really what we're talking about here. You've kind of got spreaders that drop things in rows, and then you've got ones that kind of spray it out everywhere. And so what we've got here is a, a man who's walking along, and he's broadcast, broadcasting this seed everywhere. He probably has a bag over his shoulder, and he's, he's taking it, he's just kind of, uh, kind of throwing it out, and it's spreading out everywhere. And as he does this, Jesus describes four types of soil. The first type of soil is what we might call uh, the soil beside the path. Now, as you go through fields in Israel, there are parts certainly where it's cultivated, but like uh, we have kind of roads here, they've had also three or four foot wide long paths through the middle of the field so that people could travel through that area. And so as he's throwing seed out, some goes along this path. Some of it falls along what Jesus calls the rocky soil. Now, they've no doubt uh, gone through the field like anyone would and removed the rocks from the soil. Uh, but like other places, beneath the soil throughout different uh, parts of Israel, there's just below the soil a, be a bedrock of limestone. So, uh, I don't know, it's probably been 12, 13 years ago now, I was... Uh, building a fence for a man, and as I went, it was around five acres of property. I was going in, and I reached this part, and I got that deep into the soil, I realized I'm going to have to break through stone all the way down to drop these posts in here. And that's, that's the kind of soil we're talking about. There's this thin layer of topsoil, but under that, there is this bed of rock. Some of it is uh, soil among weeds. It's overrun by weeds or thorns, as he calls here. And then the last kind of soil is the kind we all want, which is good soil. It's well-tilled, it's ready, and, and, the, and the, the seed drops in there. Well, it may or may not sound like it to you, but to these people hearing this, this sounds like a really dumb farmer. Because he's not kind of putting the seed where it all belongs. Uh, the rabbi's traditions, the Mishnah, said that planting must be orderly and don't mix seeds with other seeds. And this farmer is kind of indiscriminately throwing seed everywhere. In fact, you'd say, you know, he's got a 25% success rate. And, and one out of four seeds landing where it ought to maybe isn't that great. And yet, even though he does this, some seed does fall on good ground. And Jesus tells us it bears 30, 60, or 100-fold. Now, kind of an average harvest is will bring back, I don't know, uh, six to eight times the amount of seed. And a really, really good harvest is ten times the amount of seed sown. So what Jesus tells us here, this harvest is amazingly abundant. So this brings us to our second major idea where Jesus is going to explain the, the purpose of his parables or why he tells them, verses 10 through 17. Let's read those verses now. So he tells this parable, then, verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I like how the disciples make things, they just set it up nicely for us. They make it clear. Why are you talking this way, Jesus? So he answers a direct question. So now we've got this conversation between Jesus and the disciples about why it is that he uses this particular mode of communication. And in verse 11, Jesus differentiates between two groups. He says, to you it has been given. So this you is the disciples. But he says, to some other people it hasn't. These are people who are not disciples. To you it has been given to know the secrets, but to them it has not been given. These secrets are literally the mysteries of the kingdom. And this is the only time that Matthew uses this word mystery. Now, it's a word we have a number of times in Scripture, mostly from Paul's letters where he talks about the mysteries of God or the mystery of Christ or the mystery of the gospel. So as simple as the gospel is, trust Jesus and you can be saved, it's also an unsolvable puzzle apart from one key thing. In other words... Have you ever seen someone who understands a Rubik's Cube? Now, I don't really understand these things, but I've seen people who can do them you know, behind their back in like eight or nine seconds. You give me that same Rubik's Cube, and I can take, and maybe with a lot of labor and a few lucky moves, I can you know, solve the thing. And yet Jesus says there's something here that, that, like that Rubik's Cube, allows kind of everything to fall into place, allows everything to fit. And the thing that allows all of this to fit is spiritual illumination given by the Spirit of God. So how is it that people respond to the gospel? The Spirit of God works within our hearts to take these words, this message that we hear, convict us of our sin, and open our eyes to see Jesus as our only hope. And Jesus clearly says that this is a gift. The secrets of the kingdom are a gift. So Jesus reveal, reveals two clear purposes in parables to reveal truth, but secondly, to hide truth. First, he says that he speaks in parables to reveal truth. Verse 11, the secrets have been given to the disciples, but not to others. So how is it that God then reveals his kingdom? How is it that he reveals the truth of the gospel? And it's really by the power of his spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us this. Paul talks about this, and he's speaking here about the doctrine of what we call illumination. Now, illumination, obviously, is like turning lights on. And the spiritual doctrine of illumination is God taking people that can't see, and he sort of turns the lights on so that they can see, that so they can observe what is actually what they're hearing in the gospel. So it's why when the word of God is preached, people all hear the same words, but people respond differently, don't they? Or uh, recently, I was, I was having a conversation with someone, and they were someone who was raised in a Christian home, heard the, child, or heard the gospel through their entire childhood, and one night, they're lying in bed, and suddenly they realize, I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus. What happens in that moment? God's Spirit reached into that person's life and sort of turns the light on, and they see the truth. It's something they have been able to kind of physically see and not, not spiritually understand. And 1 Corinthians 2 talks about this. Paul says, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, 
what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. In other words, the gospel is words. The gospel is a message. The gospel is something that in one sense can be intellectually or logically understood, but it cannot be personally appropriated. It cannot, the significance of it cannot be understood apart from the working of God's Spirit. So he goes on to say in verse 11, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So when Paul says in Romans 9 and Romans 11 that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, they are higher than our thoughts, we cannot comprehend them, how is it that we can know something unknowable? How is it that Paul in Ephesians 3 can say, pray that we might know the unknowable love of God? It's not something that can be humanly understood or humanly comprehended. It is something the Spirit of God does in us. He says in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the preaching of the gospel, apart from the power of the Spirit of God, just falls on deaf ears. And what Jesus says is, you need the Spirit of God to help you understand. You need the Spirit of God not to help you physically hear, but to spiritually see, to spiritually hear. That's why he says, seeing, you don't see. Hearing, you don't hear. It's why someone can sit under the, 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 the message of the Word of God week after week after week and yet never receive the gospel because the Spirit of God hasn't yet opened their eyes to the significance of what they're hearing. And see, there's a temptation in us to believe sometimes that we're Christians because we attend church or because we live a certain way or we come from a Christian family. And yet God says these things on their own cannot lead someone to the kingdom of heaven. We cannot understand the gospel on our own. The gospel isn't merely words, although it is words. The gospel isn't merely logic. It's a gift from God, Jesus says, that defies logic that can only be spiritually comprehended. So people receive the gospel as God reveals God's truth to them by his spirit. And the gospel includes these things. Genesis 1 We are all accountable to a creator God who made everything, and he made everything good. Genesis 3 tells us a story of how we see the brokenness and the sin that we see around us. Adam and Eve fell by sinning, breaking God's one law. Romans 3 tells us that because they sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5 tells us that in Adam, all die. And yet the rest of the story is the rest of Romans 5, That in Christ all will be made alive. God sent a redeemer, his son, Jesus Christ, and that anyone who turns to faith in him can have eternal life. And yet these things are not merely verbally comprehended. They must be spiritually revealed. So scripture makes it clear. It's our responsibility to respond to the message of the gospel. But Jesus also makes it clear that the gospel, that understanding the gospel is a gift that God gives by his spirit. So it's something Jesus says you must have, but it's something that God gives. Jesus says that the second purpose of parables is to hide truth. Verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Now, the most famous part of Isaiah 6 is the very beginning of that chapter, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, he hears the angels crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then God calls Isaiah into ministry and he places a coal on his lips. 
And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone, I am unclean. But then Isaiah says, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand and turn, and I would heal them. Well, this isn't the first time we've heard this idea from Jesus, is it? At the end of Matthew chapter 11, he says, Father, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, but you have revealed them to little children. What's well, Again, a difficult saying that Jesus has here. There are people who are seeing Jesus' works, hearing Jesus' words, and yet not understanding the significance of what they see and what they hear. So is it possible that Jesus blinds people and doesn't allow them to repent? Well, let's look more closely at verses 12 and 13. For to the one who has, Jesus says, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear nor understand. So I ask the question, does Jesus blind people? Well, the answer is clearly not. I mean, do you remember the words of the hymn? Amazing Grace. Was blind, but now I see. The point is, we are blind. This isn't Jesus actively blinding. This is spiritually blind people, and Jesus helps them see. Everyone is born spiritually blind. We're all groping about in darkness, and when the Spirit of God turns on the light of the gospel, then we can see. You see, any understanding of God's truth is a sign of God's mercy to us. To quote Jesus, understanding the mystery of the kingdom of God is given. It's a gift. It's not earned. You see, Jesus is saying only those who spend time with Jesus can understand the kingdom of God. Did you get that? It's not something that you can get apart from knowing Jesus. Only those who spend time with Jesus can understand the secrets of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the key that unlocks this, and he does this by the power of the Spirit. Jesus speaks in parables, and he gives increasing light and understanding to those who are seeking the kingdom, and further blinds the eyes of those who hear his teaching with hard hearts. This is, how, how do we then hear the word of God with tender hearts toward his word? Well, at the end of the day, hearing God's word with hearts that are tender is all about God's spirit soaking the hard soil of our hearts and making them soft toward his word. So this is why, in addition to sharing the gospel, we do what? We pray. We pray for God's spirit to, to go before us to open hearts, to make hearts tender to his word. It's why we pray for our children that they would not only hear the gospel, but receive the gospel. It's why we pray for those we know and love that, that not only would God give us the courage and the faithfulness to share the gospel, but also that he'd give them ears that hear, ears that are willing, hearts that are willing to receive. Jesus doesn't gloss over the fact that receiving the gospel is God's gift, and yet there's still a responsibility on every person's heart to receive the word. He who has ears, let him hear. There's this unexplainable, humanly unexplainable, and vital tension between God's work in the gospel and our responsibility to respond with hearts that are tender to his word. Now, this creates all kinds of questions for us when it comes to the gospel and salvation, doesn't it? But there's a passage in the life of Joseph that I think is a little bit helpful here. So at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph's brothers have betrayed him. They sold him into slavery. He's followed his path through slavery, and as he's done this, he's now been placed in prison. And after being released from prison for helping Pharaoh, now he's the second ruler in all the kingdom. 
And as he's there, he's kind of dressed up like an Egyptian so his brothers don't recognize him immediately. No doubt the last time he saw him, he was much younger. But then they come and they realize that this is Joseph. And now they're freaked out. They're scared. And they cower in fear. And Joseph says, don't be afraid. And then what does he say? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So, so there are two things going on here. There's, there, there's the, the evil activity of his brothers, and yet there's a God who's working through it all to bring about good through circumstances that don't feel good at all. Now, how do you and I explain that? Well, I imagine if I were Joseph, I'd have a hard time explaining how I had to go through, all, you know, God, couldn't you have just put me on the throne, you know, without doing all the slavery and the prison and all that stuff? But somehow God worked through those things, didn't he, to, to lead to not only Joseph's success, but also the deliverance of his family, a nation, and ultimately to lead us to where we are today, where, where, where Jesus would come through the line of Israel. And yet we sit here today, and we struggle with this. Are Joseph's brothers responsible, and are they acting of their own free will? Yeah, they are. They're placing Joseph in prison. God didn't have them do that. And yet, is God somehow at work above and behind it all? Yeah, he clearly says he is. So you have humans acting responsibly, and yet you have God working, and can we explain those two things together? Well, not fully. And the way Joseph says is that you're acting, and yet God is working for good. God is in charge, but God uses specific means to accomplish his will, one of which is offering people the chance to freely respond to his offer of grace through Christ. So this brings us then to the explanation of the parable in verses 18 through 23. Jesus is going to explain his parable now, verse 18. He gets back to the parable and he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands that he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So the seed here is the word of the kingdom. It's the word of the gospel. Jesus will save any sinner who turns to him in repentance and faith. And yet sadly, this word doesn't find its way down deep in all of us, does it? Well, that's because the seed falls on four different types of soil or four different types of hearts. The first is the soil by the path. Here we see Satan blinding, actively blinding people to the truth. So Jesus doesn't actively blind people, but there is someone actively blinding people to the truth here. We are all born blind, and then Satan comes and he snatches the seed away. Verse 19 says, the evil one comes and snatches it. If it's not every week, it's close. You could find a, an article in some paper, Christian or otherwise, that describes where the church has gone wrong, why young people are leaving the church, where are the, where are the nuns, the rise of the nuns, younger generations who don't appear to receive the gospel in the same percentages as maybe their parents or grandparents did. You see, every time you speak the words of the gospel to your children, 
There's someone else there at work actively seeking to snatch it away. Every time the word goes out on a Sunday, the God of this world is blinding people to the truth. He's not passively sitting by and watching. He's actively pulling us away from the word. Jesus tells us another kind of soil is the rocky soil. Some people, they receive the gospel, but then when life gets hard, they're like, ah, this isn't for me. Some people fall away then. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears and immediately receives it with joy. And he has no root in himself, and he endures for a little while, and then when trial or persecution comes, he falls away immediately. We were raised in a culture that tells us you deserve to be happy. God exists for you. He exists to make much of you. And so when life gets hard, when we feel like life owes us and it's not giving us what we deserve, when following Jesus gets hard, some people quit. Some of the soil falls among the thorns. Jesus tells us some people love this world too much to love Jesus. As for what was sown among thorns, verse 22, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, sometimes we think of worldliness as, you know, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't go with those who do, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the Bible talks about the worldliness as kind of this system that's out to get us. Here he's just talking about living in the world as people. And, and here, the gospel isn't the only plant growing in our lives, is it? We got a lot of plants. We got family plants. We got, you know, career plants. We got car, house plants. We got other relationship plants. We got hobby plants. They're all, all, these, all these plants growing up. And they're all good things. They're not harmful things. Family, is that good? You know, having a vocation and working hard in it, is that good? Yeah. Hobby, yeah. Recreation, is that good? Yeah. There are a lot of things that are good, but, and yet these good things can be weeds that grow up and choke the life out of our relationship with Christ. You see, you cannot be captivated by pursuing success in this kingdom if you want to understand what life in the next kingdom is like. You you, you can't love this world and love the Father, 1 John 2 says, and yet we try to hang on to both, don't we? And yet Jesus says here that these things choke the life out of our relationship with Christ. And then he gets to this fourth soil, the good soil. Some people hear, believe, and continue in the word. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case 100, another 60, and another 30-fold. You see, when God works in the gospel, he's working over it all and through it all, and yet it's our responsibility to respond to it And how do we know when those two things meet, when those two things happen? There's a completed circle. Jesus says, you hear the word, you receive the word, you respond to the word, and you continue in the word. You bear fruit. You see, all four soil types have this in common. They all hear the word, don't they? I mean, the second type even receives the word with joy. So there's this initial response to the word. But what makes the soil good? It's that the fourth soil receives the word and continues in it and bears fruit. In other words, it's not 
uh, it's, it's not just hearing the word. It's not, it's not a moment. It's not just a decision. It's, it's a life that looks like Jesus. Our discipleship depends on our continued acceptance of the word of God. So how do you know if you're a follower of Jesus? It's not merely pointing to a moment in time or pointing to a prayer, although a simple prayer of faith can save you. Writing your name on a decision card doesn't mean that at the same time there's some angel in heaven writing it in the Lamb's Book of Life. These things in and of themselves aren't evidence that the gospel has taken root in our hearts. The evidence is that you listen to the word, respond to the word, and live a life that looks like the Christ of the word. It's the fruit that Jesus says here tells us what has happened. Perhaps you have a moment where you can point to where you had an experience where you became a follower of Jesus, and yet if you point to the rest of your life and it doesn't look like at all, like any level of faithfulness in your relationship with Christ, it doesn't look like Jesus, then what Jesus says here is there must be fruit for us to know that that experience was real, that it actually happened. You see, when Christ saves you, he changes you from the inside out. Your fruit changes. And so one question that I think Jesus intends all of us to ask here is not how does this, uh, you know, how does what God does and how does what we do work in terms of the gospel? What he's asking us here is look at your fruit. Does your life demonstrate fruit that looks like Jesus? And he says, if not, it may be that the seed of the gospel hasn't truly taken root in your heart. And if you look at your life and you realize that today, would you turn from your sin? Would you trust Jesus and depend upon him alone for salvation? But there's one more significant thing here, and that is our responsibility. As in, we who have received the word continue in it. What is our responsibility? Well, it's to be like this sower. It's throwing gospel seed around like crazy. The sower is anyone who plants the word, and the picture in the story is, is he's just throwing seed out everywhere. Some of it lands in good soil, some of it lands among weeds, some of it lands in the field, and some of it lands on the path. The farmer's out there, and he's spreading seed. He's spreading like he's got this unlimited bag of seed. He's spreading it everywhere. Some of it's going to get eaten by birds, and some will ne- never get rooted deep in the soil. Ironically enough, this week I had a conversation with a couple church members at their home talking about their yards. One was a yard that, I mean, it is completely bare. There's nothing there. It's kind of all graded. They're, gonna, they're, they're planting seed there. And they're talking about going out there, and what are you doing? You're trying to get as much seed as possible to take. Now, we, we think the gospel should be like putting in sod. You know, you just put it in, and then we got mature Christians. But that's just not the way it works. We, you spread seed, and then you water it. You get some sun. If you get the right amount of sun and water, you know, you might get some growth. Someone else is talking, and, you know, you got there, and you got shade, right? If you get too much shade, the, the grass doesn't grow right or if you don't get the right soil consistency. And one yard is planted, the other is unplanted. But what Jesus says here is that our responsibility is to keep planting, to be like this farmer, a persistent, wasteful farmer throwing seed out everywhere. We have no idea what God is doing in hearts. I mean, we can see physically what's going on in the outside of people, but sometimes we don't know what's going on in someone's heart that morning. So our responsibility is to plant seeds, So plant, 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 plant the seeds. Be like this farmer, throwing it out. If you're the parent of unbelieving children, Jesus says, plant the seeds. If you're the children of unbelieving parents, he says, plant the seeds, keep planting. The gospel seed is our only hope. 
and generous, wasteful planting, if we keep doing it, doing it, doing it, some, he says, lands on good soil. And unless you got x-ray vision, I don't know which, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of soil we're talking here. And he says, plant. And so when people walk into Ashley or Baptist Church, if there's anything that should stick on people, it's the seeds of the gospel. It's the seeds of the good news that God loves you and sent his son to redeem you. It's the seeds of the good news that even though you are a sinner and cannot save yourself through faith in Christ, God will save anyone who comes to him. You want to encourage someone to bear fruit? Plant another gospel seed in a Christian's life. I mean, husbands, when your wife's discouraged, worn out, sick, and tired, take the seed of the hope of the gospel, that Jesus is the perfect bridegroom, and that though this this world is a hard place to live, Jesus offers a perfect eternal relationship with him, a place of joy, a place of rest, where none of this heartache is there, where none of this pain is there, and through him we have the hope of this life, an encourager with the seeds of the gospel. When a friend is frustrated, worn down by life, work, hardship, the brokenness of this world, the cruel worlds of other, point that person to the Christ of the kingdom, the one who never sinned, the one who never disappointed, the one who never failed, and yet loves us, paid the price for all of our sin and failure. Throw gospel seeds and throw them and throw them and throw them. We tend to live like this. We throw a gospel dart back toward a moment of salvation. We walk away and leave it. And yet what Jesus says is our growth in the word depends on our connection to this message. Our encouragement of one another depends upon our connection to the good news of Jesus Christ. That he doesn't just save us for a moment, but he saves us for eternity. He saves us for a lifetime and more of relationship. So throw the gospel seeds. Throw them around like crazy. Throw them for those who have never heard, but throw them for those who need to hear today that Jesus is our only hope. That we keep hearing and accepting and receiving the word and bearing fruit in our lives. Brothers and sisters, if you're looking at your life in some proportion of your words, and I do mean to the non-Christian, I do mean to those who have never heard, but I also mean to those who live in your house, to those who sit around you now, to those who you live with in a relationship If someone were looking at your life, would they look at your fruit and say, someone's bearing 30-fold, someone's bearing sick? I mean, look at all the gospel fruit in this person's life. But they look and they're like, way back somewhere in the distance, I think, I think there's a gospel root in there somewhere. Or our lives full, bearing fruit, gospel fruit, as we encourage one another in this message. Let's take a minute now and respond to God's word and repentance and faith. I'll give you a minute to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.